what would you do if you discovered a plane crash? Would your answer be different if the plane you found contained 6,000 pounds of marijuana? In 1977, some people had to make that decision. My name is Jeff Fargin, and this is the High Adventure Podcast. Welcome to episode three of the High Adventure Podcast, where we continue to drill down into the story of the 1977 Yosemite pot plane crash. If you're new to us, you might want to go back and listen to the previous episodes to get up to speed on where we are in the story. In this episode, we're going to discuss the aftermath of the crash and the strange set of circumstances that set this story in motion and created a story that we're still talking about more than 40 years later. I want to thank all of you who have sent me emails and messages about the podcast. I really appreciate the kind words and the support. I'll try to answer emails and social media questions online, but I know many of you are not following us on social media, so I'll try to answer some of the questions here where I can. This question came in from Eddie from Moab, Utah, and Eddie wants to know if the pilot was such a well-liked guy who had a family and seemingly had everything going for him, why would he jeopardize all that and run drugs? Well, Eddie, that's a question that's hard to answer. I'm not sure what the reasons were exactly, but money's usually the answer when it comes to criminal activity. John Gliske was well-liked, and by all accounts, he was a devoted husband and father. Between runs on his last day, he talked with his wife on the phone and mailed a toy tea set to his six-year-old daughter. It's strange that he mailed the tea set. That would indicate that he wasn't headed home that day or back to Seattle anytime soon. He was based in Seattle, and it was thought that that's where he was headed after his drops in Nevada and ultimately landing in Boise, Idaho. But sending the tea set meant he was most likely going to go back to Vegas after Idaho to do maybe more runs that week. Remember, the Vietnam War had really only ended about a year before. The returning vets were not welcomed back with open arms the way they are today. It was a difficult economy, and making ends meet was hard. He was a skilled pilot, and remember, while in Vietnam, he and his friends had stolen equipment and moved it around by using military helicopters. So coloring outside the lines was not necessarily something John Gliske was uncomfortable with. So it's one of those situations where he might have been a great guy, but was also comfortable living pretty far outside the law. And the money was huge. Remember, the average household income was about $14,000 a year. The street price of marijuana in 1977 was about 150 bucks an ounce. The plane had 6,000 pounds of marijuana. That's about $14.4 million per load. And Gliske was making two runs a day. We don't know how many runs he made per week or per month or how many he'd made in the past, but $29 million a day? It's not bad. Obviously, these numbers are estimates, but these numbers are staggering, even if you're using very conservative math. So, Eddie, long story short, I'd say he did it and risked it all for the money. Thanks for your question. Keep them coming. I want to encourage you all to leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. This is a new show, and we have several seasons planned, and your review will help us build the audience. It doesn't really matter what you say about us, but leave us five stars. It's the star rating that pushes the podcast up in the algorithm, so we really appreciate those stars. So back on December 9th, 1976... John Gliske and Jeff Nelson crashed the Howard 500 in the Lower Merced Pass Lake. The five-acre lake is frozen solid and the plane punches right through the ice nose first. The wing is almost a mile up the hill, nearly completely intact, but wedged between two trees. This is a fairly large wing. The Howard 500 had a 72-foot wingspan, so these wings are around 30 feet long. When the plane was found, there really wasn't 
much to find. There was some wreckage on the hill, and the rest of the plane was in the lake, submerged under the ice. There's no way of knowing exactly how the plane behaved after losing the wing, but it seems it became very unstable when the engine fell off the wing, and likely the load shifted and forced the plane to list hard to one side, and that's probably when it caught the tree and sheared the wing off, and the plane then just lost lift and tumbled down the hill and right through the ice and became submerged in the lake. The nose cone was floating like an Apollo capsule vertically in the lake about a 100 feet offshore. The rest of the plane was in pieces and, along with the cockpit, was completely submerged. Yellow insulation and fuel lines littered the shoreline of the lake, and a plane of that size going at that speed would have broken the ice like a hammer on an ice cube. But with the December temperatures, the lake simply froze around and over John Gliske, Jeff Newman, and their plane. That would be quite a sight to stumble upon. But we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, and after this break, we'll get back to John's wife, Pam Gliske, when she learned her husband was missing, and what happened after she notified the authorities. I assume you're listening to this podcast because you enjoy a good adventure story. Along with the High Adventure podcast, Accidental Productions also produces the Accidental podcast that features interviews with rock climbers and adventurers from around the world. We've also produced a number of films, as well as the web series El Cap Bridge, featuring discussions with the famous and not-so-famous climbers that hang out in what's called the center of the climbing universe. Our feature film, Assault in El Capitan, takes you up on the second ascent of Wings of Steel, with legendary big wall climber Ammon McNeely as he tries to solve the mystery of the most controversial climb in Yosemite history. Assault in El Capitan is available on streaming services everywhere and is free on Amazon Prime. We'll soon be opening our online store where you'll find several of our other films, podcasts, and web series, as well as the typical podcast merch. Stay tuned for the date of our grand opening. Now back to the show. Welcome back. This plane and his crew were based in Seattle, and certainly there were times they flew home at the end of a run, but December 9th, 1976 was not one of those times. Pam Gliske was in her Seattle home with her six-year-old daughter waiting for the end-of-the-day call from her husband. John never missed calling Pam. He would often call between runs, and on days when he wasn't coming home or staying in Las Vegas, he always called at the end of the day after his final run. The winter of 1976-77 was unseasonably dry. California was in its second year of the worst drought in a 100 years. During these years, the high Sierras didn't get a lot of snow, but the temperatures were still bitterly cold. A few years ago, we experienced a similar winter in the Sierras. On a January weekend, I drove up to the high north end of Yosemite, up to the Tuolumne Meadows region of the park. Those roads are normally closed by snow in mid-October and don't reopen most years until late May or June. But on this weekend, the mile-and-a-half-long and half-mile-wide half Tenaya Lake was frozen solid. There were people on ice skates skating the circumference of the lake, and a pickup hockey game was going on in the middle of the lake. They had bonfires out there. There were barbecues. For those of you in the Midwest, East, and in Canada, this may not seem like a big deal. But in California, this is a once-in-a-lifetime occurrence. Even with frequent droughts, this unique event was incredible. We just don't get these kind of events where it's very, very cold with no snow. So these unique conditions also existed during the winter of 1976-77. Pam Gliske knew there was something wrong when John failed to call on the 9th, and then on the 10th, and then on the 11th. Her hope was that he'd flown a different route, maybe had trouble and landed in the desert somewhere and couldn't get to a phone. 
Remember, there were no mobile phones, no pagers, no social media. So if someone went missing, they were really missing. There was no way to reach them, no way to contact them. Pam was worried. But what should she do? What would you do? Who should she call? After 10 days, yes, 10 days of not hearing from John, Pam finally called the authorities. But what authorities should she call? She knows that if he's lost over the ocean or crashed in the mountains, he's likely dead. If he is found alive, he has 6,000 pounds of high-grade Mexican red hair marijuana on his plane. This is not going to end well, no matter what's happened to John. Pam was and had always been aware of what John did for a living. She was a young mother in the 70s and had a nice husband who provided well for the family. She didn't think what he did was necessarily wrong, but it was illegal, and she knew that. It's believed that Pam waited the 10 days before making the call to be sure she was distanced a bit from the operation, just in case she was ever accused of being part of the smuggling ring. That's pretty old-timey talk, too. When when was the last time you heard somebody refer to a criminal enterprise as a ring? It's another reason to listen to the High Adventure podcast. We breach the historical timeline of dramatic slang here every single episode. So Pam decides it's time to call someone. But who to call? She had no idea if he was lost in Mexico, Nevada, Idaho, Washington, California, or sunk in the Pacific Ocean. Should she call the sheriff? If so, which sheriff? Which jurisdiction? Should she call the Coast Guard? If he's not in the water, they're not going to find him. Without knowing exactly where he was or exactly where he disappeared, she called the agency that she thought would be the most interested and could cover the territory necessary to find him. Pam called the Drug Enforcement Agency. Yep, she called the DEA. Always truly believing her husband was alive, Pam's thinking that was maybe he was caught. And if he was caught, the DEA was the likely agency that would be holding him. When she called the DEA, she told them everything about John's business and his activities and that he's now missing. So she pretty much spilled the beans on the whole operation. She told the DEA about John's thinking that someone was trying to kill him. The DEA didn't have a lot of empathy for John or Pam. Turns out that John Glisky was well known to the DEA and they'd been after him for years. He'd been a ghost in their surveillance reports. DEA planes had had John and his Howard 500 in their sights several times, but John and his plane had seemingly disappeared into thin air. Once more, it seems John's Vietnam training was serving him well. Avoiding federal law enforcement is no small achievement, but did they really want to catch him? There's some indication, perhaps just a rumor, Catching him was not exactly their top priority. We'll talk about that more when we delve into the black book and what was found at the crash site. Now, after Pam had called the DEA, she thought things were going to move pretty quickly. She'd called them around December 20th or so and had cooperated with the DEA, but they were being very quiet about their efforts to find him. Tired of waiting around, she finally chartered a plane herself and set off to find her husband. So this is giving you a little idea that money is not necessarily a problem. If you can charter a plane and start search blindly for a little speck on the ocean or a little speck in the mountains, then that's going to take a little time. So she told her pilot to fly low and fly into Mexico along the Baja California coast. They landed at every airstrip they could find, and Pam got out and talked to every character she could find to see if anyone had seen her husband. No one had seen the six foot two inch American pilot. After several weeks, a DEA agent did call Pam one afternoon to tell her that a plane had been found in Yosemite, and they believed it was John's plane. Turns out it was John's plane, but the DEA didn't find it. 
Ron Likens and his three friends found it while hiking and snowshoeing in the Yosemite backcountry. Ron Likens was an employee of the Iwani Hotel in Yosemite Valley. He and a couple friends decided to head out on their days off for a bit of hiking and snowshoeing. Winter was slow in the park, so the chances of seeing anyone on their trip was as remote as their destination. Because of the drought, there was less snow than usual at the higher elevations, but it was still rough going. This is tough territory to move around. Wandering through the backcountry, they were about eight miles out when they lost track of the trail. Likens took the lead and came to a sloping, gentle bowl that was home to the Lower Merced Pass Lake. Lower Merced Pass Lake was not easily found. It was not even listed on some of the topographical maps of the area. Looking over the landscape for some sort of direction, he saw something far off in the distance that didn't look quite right. It looked like there was a small bridge between two trees, and as they got closer, they saw it was an airplane wing caught and hanging between these two trees. Remember, this is still far up the hill, almost three-quarters of a mile above the lake where the plane ended up. When Likens and his friends got to the wing, there was still some hydraulic oil still slowly dripping from the frayed oil lines, which indicated this hadn't happened too long ago. Was this the line that was damaged before and not replaced? I don't think we'll ever really know the answer to that. Likens and his friends thought about hiking to the lake, but it was getting dark, so they decided to set up camp. In the morning, they packed up and hiked out, but not before taking a few pictures and getting the number off the wing. The number was N80BD. This number would later confirm that Ron Likens had, in fact, found the wing of John Gliskey's Howard 500 airplane. It was mid-January, six weeks after the crash and a few days after finding the wing, when Ron Likens wandered into Yosemite Valley and approached Ranger Randy Cooley, who was on patrol in the valley on this quiet midwinter afternoon. Likens told Cooley that he'd found the wing of an airplane east of Ostrander Lake up and near the Lower Merced Pass. Likens handed Ranger Cooley the piece of paper that he'd written the number of the wing on. Cooley immediately radioed search and rescue ranger Tim Setnika. Setnika's office had a map that marked every known plane crash within Yosemite's boundaries. Ten minutes later, Cooley was in Setnika's office and they were looking at the map. Cooley repeated what Likens had told him. Rangers Setnika and Cooley looked over the crash-marked maps, but couldn't find a crash site in the area that Likens had described. Setnika asked Cooley if he thought Likens was sure about where he found the wing. Cooley said that Likens and his friends seemed to be experienced backcountry travelers and were clear about where they were and what they were talking about. Cooley pulled out his notebook with the wing number he'd copied from Likens' written note. He read the wing number to Setnika and again told him the story about what Likens had told him about where the wing was found. They decided to call the Air Rescue Coordination Center that was housed at Scott Air Force Base in Illinois. The ARCC coordinated all inland military search and rescue activities in the U.S. The agency has since been renamed the Air Force Rescue Coordination Center and is now located at Tyndall Air Force Base in Florida. Rachel Setnika explained to the duty officer who answered the phone what he'd recently learned. Setnika was told that there was no active search currently going on and they had not received a report of any missing aircraft in the West. Setnika relayed the wing number N80BD. It seems that the N in the wing number was of particular interest. The duty officer took down the number and said he would call back. Five minutes later, Setnika's phone rang. There was a captain from the ARCC on the other end. But after listening to Setnika tell the story again, he asked him to repeat the N wing number, and then repeat it again. And then he told Setnika he would call him back in 15 minutes. Fifteen minutes later, the phone rang. 
This time it was a U.S. custom agent from Washington, D.C. This guy wanted to hear the details of the crash and once again wanted to verify the N-wing number. Then the custom guy wanted to know exactly where the crash was and what was the nearest road. The ranger told him how remote this place was and the guy hung up. Twenty minutes later, a supervisor with the U.S. Customs called and Setnika told the story all over again and again verifying the end number. The supervisor then went about confirming that Ranger Setnika and Cooley were in fact National Park Rangers. The government then sent a Naval Air Station helicopter from nearby Lemoore Air Base with two Rangers to find and investigate the crash. When they found the crash, the two rangers were dropped in. They found the wing in the tree and confirmed it was the plane with the mysterious end number. It was John Gliske's plane. There was a trail of debris leading to the lake, and as the rangers got closer to the lake, they saw dozens of burlap bundles along the shore and up in the trees and strewn everywhere. Yellow insulation and other parts were thrown all around the area. The plane's nose cone was sticking straight up, but the plane had broken up and was completely submerged, and the lake was frozen over. What happened in the next few hours was chaotic, and in many ways typical of what happens when a plane loaded with drugs goes down on federal lands. Five different agencies were jockeying for control of the crash site in the plane. The park rangers, the Federal Aviation Association, the DEA, the U.S. Customs, and the National Transportation Safety Board all laid claim to the wreck in some way or another. Customs sent a Vietnam-era Huey from San Diego to shuttle agents and rangers to the crash site and the site was under siege. The park's Office of Law Enforcement took charge, and together with armed customs agents, gathered as much marijuana as they can find. There were bundles of it everywhere. Most of the bundles were broken up, and the weed was soaked. A makeshift camp that looked like a gold rush settlement sprung up, but instead of miners, it was full of feds. The NPS, the DEA, the FAA, the NTSB, and customs. Along with the bales of weed on shore, the feds were cutting through the ice on the lake with chainsaws and pulling saturated bales through the ice. They stacked and cataloged about 2,000 pounds of weed, which is about a third of what was on the plane. And then after being the driest winter in years, a storm came in. The frozen lake was piling up with snow and the feds had no choice but to abandon the site. The decision was made to get everyone out of the area and come back in the spring after the ice melted to finish the investigation and the salvage. In the next episode, we're going to take a look at what happened after the feds abandoned the site and what happened to the remaining 4,000 pounds of weed. How long would it take before word got out and someone else decided to come and visit this place? High Adventure Podcast is produced by Accidental Productions. Follow High Adventure on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and find us on all your favorite podcast platforms. We'll see you at the crash site.